opening up episode 222 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Riding the Coffin. It's from the band Rondo Hatton. Yeah, there's a band called Rondo Hatton, and they're very cool. You can check them out over at rondohattonband.com. This song appears on the album Breaking the Sound Barrier. You're going to get to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode. Welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I'm very excited because this is our continuing chat with authors Paul McComas and Greg Sterrett about their award-winning novel, Fit for a Frankenstein. It took home an award in the 2013 Halloween Book Festival, and it's definitely worth it. I think it's a fun read, and I think that's obvious if you listen to this chat or you listen to episode 221. In fact, if you go back to episode 221 and check out the cover art for that episode, you're going to see the author's photo of Paul and Greg. Now, in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, you'll hear who is who in that monster photo. You also get to see the cover art for the book if you check out the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net and check out the cover art for this episode of the show. And I'm eager to get to this conversation with Paul and Greg. We're going to talk more about their collaboration process, a bit of how Paul views the world, some exciting projects that Greg's involved with, and we're also going to hear a little bit about some of their future book plans. This is exciting. I can't wait to share it. I'm going to do that right after this. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Oh, please, darling, let me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the Oblong Box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, The Oblong Box. The Oblong Box in color from American International is rated M. As a man, I could destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Vincent, turn on the generator. On a vast scale, Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. The Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Ugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. Heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers.
know, one other thing we didn't touch on in the book uh, is, you know, we got to have all this fun and create the tailor and his daughter and all that, but we got to also go back and look at events in the Universal series. We got, you know, we know that Igor worked for Henry Frankenstein, so we get to see how they meet. I mean, we got to write that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we got, you know, we know Igor was hanged, so we got to write that. I looked at uh, all of the kind of rebirths and deaths of the monster at the beginning and end of all the movies after Ghost of Frankenstein. And these were Greg's, these were Greg's ideas and Greg's sequences, and I think they add a lot. Most of the bad jokes are mine, and the sequences <laughs> that he's just mentioned are. <laughs> when Klaus looks at the dimension, says, "This is going to be a monster of a job." That's mine. So, uh, but yeah, Greg said, "Let me do the origin story because if not now, when?" I'm like, "Exactly. There should have been a Universal Pictures spin-off movie, a prequel, an origin story about Igor." Well, now you can read all about how he got into body snatching. He was never a shepherd. He was never a shepherd. He has a shepherd's horn. He has a shofar, which, of course, you know, he doesn't know it's called that. So when Klaus says, that crude shofar of yours, Igor says, horn no drives me around town. That's another of my bad jokes. There are some better ones in there, I promise. Yeah, we get to do the origin story, uh, which Greg wrote, and uh, that's called All Those Years Ago which is my little homage to George Harrison. And then the, the one where he presciently dreams about the events that will befall the monster once Igor's brain is inside it, mm-hmm. which is a nice way of foreshadowing the fact that that's going to happen at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein. He has visions from the next three movies, and that's called What Dreams Will Come, that chapter. And so he, he realizes, he wakes up and he says, this is paraphrasing, this all that will happen to me, uh, the fires, uh, the freezing, the damp cave, you know, that will have to be one hell of a durable suit. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all yours, Greg, to, to do the incorporation of the other films. Yep. Wow. Yep, that was just, like he said at the beginning, I wrote the first scene and then Greg uh, gave me suggestions and, and he wrote the second scene and then I had some suggested tweaks for that. And by and large, what it turned into, Greg was sometimes developing a great skeleton that didn't have quite enough meat on it and I would add some meat and I at times was developing a meaty body with some fat on it and he was excising <laughs> the fat. Do you think that's fair, Greg? Yeah, I do. I had a tendency to overwrite a little and to go a little too far over the edge on some of the stuff. In. And he had a tendency to have great stuff in there that also had potential for, say, a joke or a sh- bit of shtick right there. And uh, so that's one reason why it was a, a great collaboration. Like I said, I couldn't have done this 15, 20 years ago. I've become a very good collaborative writer because um, I've gotten past that insecurity that comes from not being published. And once you're published it, and you get good reviews like the ones Fit has gotten, you get a lot more uh, comfortable letting someone else in and not having to say, no, we're going to do it my way and my way only. But I was trying to give you a uh, segue a moment ago. Before I do that, though, I'll say we haven't mentioned really Gretel Hauptschmidt, the 16-year-old daughter of uh, Klaus, who's a widower. And uh, she's a relatively small supporting character, but the more we wrote her, the more we came to like her. And she, we didn't want her just, just to be Bavarian cheesecake, you know. And so she becomes a smart, clever, willful, and very brave girl. And then on the cover, she's Bavarian cheesecake. So we had her cake in 82. It's the way that she can feel like, yeah, you support women's rights. But let's also put her in a low-cut blouse and a dirndl skirt at the same time. Gretel's cool. And so the book is not a sausage fest. There is a very strong female character in it. But the segue I was trying to show us to set up with is uh, we'll be encouraged to write more of these mm-hmm. if we make money from it at all. So right now I think we've made each about $18. <laughs> So, it, 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 I'll say this one more time. We would then be encouraged to write more of these. Yes, and there is, you know, there are some other glaring gaps in the Universal Monster uh, series. And the one that we're going to focus on next is in The Mummy's Tomb. You think yeah. back to that film, the priests send Karis and one of their own 
to America to uh, get the Banning family. And, uh, One of the high priests. Yeah. Yes. High priest, yeah. They put them on a boat, and off they go to America. The next thing you know, they're at the cemetery in Mapleton. How did they get there? We'll have to tell that story. I mean, it, that's, and that's a long ocean voyage, so there's, uh, who knows what might ensue. What a long, strange trip it will be. Mapleton, USA. I don't think they ever established where that is. I know that uh, the first two... Uh, I believe it is uh, Mapleton, Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Yeah. I think that's, that may be right. But then by the third movie, which we're... Maybe we should have addressed this too, maybe. Maybe <laughs> our mummy should be a, a two-parter where the first part is how he goes to America, and the second part is how between the mummy's ghost and the mummy's curse, somehow... <laughs> Mapleton has moved to Louisiana. I, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask yeah. you about that. If you're going to address that magic swamp where he sinks at the well, end of one. Mommy got into the Mississippi somehow, and <laughs> I don't know. Or that could be a separate book. But yeah, and the mummy's cruise. And my, my picture for the title has got the mummy, you know, he's got this one arm up against his chest always. But the other hand is on the, the, the steering wheel, whatever you call it, for a, for a boat. And the, the words would say, the mummy's curse, and then curse would be crossed out, and cruise, a very simple word, written right underneath. I think that there will be a love interest. I think it will be a mermaid. I think there will be a sea serpent in there somewhere. I think Robert and Kurt Siodmak will make cameo appearances as people on the cruise. Nice. There is a, a short scene. In the movie, isn't there, Greg, in the hold of the ship where yeah. Turhan Bay is looking at the box, but he doesn't open it, or he opens it and lights some tana leaves or something. But it's so brief, and my God, I, I, clearly The Mummy's Truth is a movie in itself. It's a story in itself. It's a screaming to be told, and we, we're going to tell it. <laughs> we're going to tell it and make people scream as a result in terror at our jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Derek, would you like to hear about what we might do after that one? Of course I would. What do you, t- yeah. All right. It's working title, Wardrobe of the Wolfman. Oh, in boy. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Uh-huh. He's in the hospital at the beginning of uh, the movie. He's in a straitjacket and a hospital gown, and he's lying there with a cap on his head, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone's asleep because uh, it's in the middle of the night and the moon comes out and the light shines through the hospital window onto his face. He holds still like they did in those days for transformations and slowly turns into the wolf and the eyes dart around. He snarls and uh, maybe we see him start to get out of bed. That's it. And uh, we dissolve to the city street. This would be this area, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, it's, uh, no, it's I not, the name not of the Viseria. Show. That's right. It's not Viseria, and it's not uh, Lanawilla either. It's somewhere else. And um, there's a policeman on patrol, I think. No, no. The, who does he attack? Is it a policeman? Clearly, we need to do our research. It's a policeman that finds him in Talbot form with a head wound. And right. Right. Him to the hospital. Anyways, he goes out there and he attacks someone. But the, the point is, he's prowling around the streets of this variant city. In his work pants and buttoned, long-sleeved shirt. And then at the end, he's exhausted and unconscious back in his room at the hospital in his gown. So, what the hell? The wolfman must have taken off his hospital gown. Maybe he isn't wearing a straitjacket. Maybe that's Slayer. But he takes off his hospital gown. Okay, I can get that. Especially if he tears it off, shreds it. But he also puts on his work pants, buttons and zips them, puts on his long sleeve button shirt, tucks it in, <laughs> and goes out to be, well, he's already a werewolf, to be a murderous beast. And then afterwards he comes back and, presumably in Larry Talbot form, changes back. What the hell, right? (laughs) I mean, that's a problem. It's a real problem. Did I realize or notice it as a kid? No. Of course not. Yeah. No, no. You're just so charmed by it all and and, and intrigued and excited. But uh, as an adult... Now we have to answer those burning questions. That's our our job. (laughs) Wardrobe of the Wolfman. Did he do it by himself? 
Did he have help? From whom? Possibly the blind man, the blind hermit from The Bride of Frankenstein, who is alive at the end of Bride, after all. We know he has a penchant for stumbling into friendships with monsters. Now we'll figure it out. I would love to hear the brainstorming sessions on that. That sounds <laughs> awesome. You know, with these books, they clearly take place. I mean, we're fans and we love these movies. So they clearly take place in these, these universal films. They're not sanctioned. I mean, they're not licensed by universal. Has anybody <laughs> said anything at all? I mean, has there been any reaction from the families of the, the actors to the studio or anything like that? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. I wish there was. I wish they would say, hey, we love it. It's great. Here's some money. Yeah, that'd be great. There you go. See, that's what I'm angling for. That's what I'm hoping. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, Ron Chaney, Ron's grandson, uh-huh. he should reach out to us. A Lugosi grandchild should reach out to us. Just as long as Universal Studios' legal team doesn't reach out to us. Well, I don't think there's anything in here that's overly damning. I mean, clearly, they're their own stories, and I'm not suggesting right. that you know, there's anything going on yeah, here, this, you know, but, but I mean, they are their own stories and they, they exist and they stand on their own and they can with or without the film. So, you know, if you look at the cover of fit for a Frankenstein, this would be the, exactly the same, except instead of, um, buxom young Gretel Hauptschmidt being the main figure, she's looking at her father's hands in the foreground, holding up a tape measure, but she's whirling towards the window to see the silhouetted outline of the monster. The only element that changed from our original cover was instead of Gretel, you had a very Lugosi-like Igor standing there mm-hmm. a little closer to the hands, to the tailor's hands, with his hands up, um, looking aghast at the measurement. And it was based on a still. Uh, Jimmy Waters traced it. No, it was, it was based <laughs> on a still from the scene in Ghost of Frankenstein where the monster's being hit by lightning and Lugosi really overacts. I know that sounds redundant, but I mean, even for Bailey, he's like, and we grab the still. Now, I have to say, Lugosi as Igor in Son of Frankenstein, I think, is brilliant. That's my favorite role and movie of his, even above Dracula. He's not as good as, at the part, in my opinion, in Ghost of Frankenstein. Maybe it's because he's not wearing those craggy false teeth. But he goes over the top in scenes like that, and I didn't see him do that in in Sun. But nonetheless, our movie takes place within Ghost, so, you know, you work with what you've got. And I think our Igor is actually, in some ways, more more faithful to the Son of Frankenstein Igor. And we gave him a couple of his Son of Frankenstein lines to repeat. They say... Mm -hmm. No, I I would agree with you regarding the... uh the difference in portrayal between Sun and Ghost is something I hadn't really thought about until you brought it up just now. But no, you're yeah. right. In Ghost, it is very over the top. Well, everything about Ghost is a little bit more over the top than Sun anyway. Um, Chaney is playing a very different kind of monster. Yeah. It's coming for some criticism, but, you know, who was writing about this? It was in Monster Bash. I'll tell you what, same issue as ours. In the back was a letter, and I'll tell you who it's from because this person deserves credit. And they said... The thing is, if he doesn't play the monster as really stoic and flat and almost emotionless throughout the movie, then you don't get that great turnabout where he's inhabited by Igor at the end and where Cheney really brings it and his facial expressions are very Lugosi. And for that turnabout, you really do need him to underplay. Uh, even when he's with little what's her name, Cloestine, he can't be acting all mushy like Karloff, appropriately, <laughs> sometimes did. It's not a criticism. This was Jeff Taylor, who comes from Canada, made a great point. So Paul's referencing that Monster Bash issue that we've talked about. It's issue 25. It's got John Carradine on yep. the cover. Yeah, long letter from this Canadian guy and a six-pager with beautiful photos of four fit from Ghost and then a nice uh, authorship photo yeah, we decided not to go for the straight author's photo, like, you know, the headshots and stuff like that. We decided to do it in character. And uh, I don't remember even why we picked who was going to be. I think I was going to be Igor because you were coming out for the shoot, uh, the photo shoot, and I would have more time to do the beard on right. myself. I think that was actually what, what how we determined. Uh, That's right. We, we were just about the same height, and so one of us was going to stand on the platform and the other one was going to hunch down. Igor makeup's harder to do because of the beard, whereas 
I own a Frankenstein top of head piece and, and, and electrodes. And Greg was able to do the rest of my monster makeup as well as all of Igor. And the Igor takes more time. A long time ago, it, my friend that used to have Halloween parties all the time, we built this kind of a castle backdrop that he would put up in his basement, and uh, it was great for taking photos in front of. So we had a couple panels of that up, and so that was that's the background is the the old Halloween castle, and uh, Paul and I standing in front of it, and him on a box, and me kind of hunched down to make the height difference uh, happen. And Greg's wife, Lori, took the shot. And yeah, was quite a few my wife was, was the photographer. It was hard picking just one, but I think we, I think we got a good one. And uh, you know that picture certainly, unlike the original cover, that picture and the ultimate cover, you could uh, you could post with the story um, if you wanted to. The DK. Yeah, I was going to ask if we can use the uh, the artist photo as the episode image this time around, so people can check that out if they aren't going to go buy the book, which they should, because it's in there as well. Well, they'll check out the picture, and then I'll say, you know what, that seals the deal. I have to have this book. There you go. Look at those, look at those handsome pages. I've got to have that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look at those handsome faces. I've there got to have there we go. There we go. No, I, I do recommend the book. I mean, I still stand behind it wholeheartedly like I did uh, the first time I read it. When I say something like it's an easy read, I don't mean that it's you know simple. I mean, it's a very engaging story for people who love these movies. And you're going to sit yeah. down and read it in one sitting if you're not careful. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that because it's such a fun story. I love it. And knowing that you are going to revisit some of our other favorite monsters from the Universal Au revoir, I'm thrilled. I mean, I love yeah. me a good mummy story, so I can't wait yeah. to read about you know the cruise the mummy takes. And I know, Paul, you're just jumping up and down inside about revisiting Lon Chaney's wardrobe. I know, <laughs> just it's amazing. <laughs> you know, it will probably have some elements in common with Abbott and Costello meet uh, Frankenstein. Lenny Cook said that he thought that our book was more like that than like Young Frankenstein. I think our book fit. It's more like Young Frankenstein, but I see his point because some of the liberties Mel Brooks took or were so over the top that you're outside of uh, the over at that point, um, looking back in. And we tried to be at the edge of it, but not outside it. Alvin Costello, me Frankenstein, I think likewise stayed within the over within the series, mm-hmm. um, but really pushed it to its limits. You know, it's not like they had. Talbot look at the camera and say, can you believe these guys? They never did that. The, the, the actors, non-Abbott and Costello actors, played their parts uh, very seriously, and that's why the movie works. Oh, it's, a, it's a straight approach to the monster yeah. movies, and it gives them a great send-off because they are playing them straight. Abbott and Costello yeah. are, are going nuts around them, but it, it's such a nice blend of comedy and horror, and you yeah. do pick up on that in Fit for a Frankenstein. I suppose I could see the young Frankenstein element as well, but when I think about Fit for a Frankenstein, I don't think young Frankenstein. I think that we were about to say? Fit and Frisky? What? So, something like that, yeah. Fit <laughs> <laughs> and When I think about your book, I don't think young Frankenstein. I go straight to the universal. I go straight yeah. to that Abbott and Costello. I suppose I could see the young and Frankenstein. The young and Frankenstein. I suppose I could see the young Frankenstein. The young and the restless Frankenstein. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Let's see, that should be the next book, right? I'll write that one. How about I write that one? Okay, you write that one. Yeah. <laughs> you can have the soap opera angle. That, that's fine. Well, I mean, maybe the biggest touchstone between ours and young Frankenstein is that both have fun with the idea of the monster's endowment. Right. And I don't mean from Tübingen in university. I'm talking about something else. It's that shadow again. Yes, that's right. An oblong shadow spanned the monster-adjacent wall. That's subtle. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) If you say so. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to hear about these other books coming up. And I I know, Paul, you've got other projects in the work. Greg, is writing something that you do uh, regularly, or is this just something you do with Paul? Uh, it's something I do with Paul. I mean, that's okay. my first effort of, I mean, that my first uh, thing that was published, obviously, was with Paul. But uh, I'm involved with a group where it's called Bite Radio Theater, and we're uh, big fans of old-time radio shows. And we write and uh, produce and act in our own old-time radio shows. And so uh, we write as a group there. 
there's several people we get together usually once a week and work on scripts and then get a bunch together and then record some shows. And so I've been writing for quite a while in that mode, I guess that you could say you're um, recording volume three right now. It's right. We're working on volume three as we speak. And it's fun for me because he's invited me in, um, not as a writer, which I do probably too much of. I also love to act, Natural Born Ham, and uh, I've become a member of their ensemble cast. I, I couldn't tell. You know, the, I juicy part. <laughs> the, uh, the ham thing? No. no. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm a shrinking violet. Um, they give me a couple of really juicy parts, and uh, that's a lot of fun. Are these anything that people can hear online, Greg? Or? You know, we're looking at putting together some kind of a podcast thing for that. Um, so, yeah, hopefully in the future that they will be available. Keep me posted. Get some I'd tips, love to hear Get it. some tips from Derek. He, he's the king of, uh, you know, <laughs> creating a podcast. No, creating a podcast and then and, and you know, making a success of it. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk off mic. We'll talk off those mic. Are all, yeah, those are all original properties that you're doing too, Greg. Makes it a lot simpler. You know, right. it's not like you're doing episodes of The Shadow or something. Maybe those are public domain, maybe not, but yours are all original. So. Right. But I was going to ask as well, when do we get the Gonrad Veidt novel? How do you two? Yeah, right. So that, <laughs> yeah, I think that, was, that should be Greg's solo debut as a literary effort as an author. Yeah, I'll pick up where Victor Hugo left off and uh, right. continuing Saga of the Man Who Laughs or something. There you go. Right. You go. Or um, Cesar's Revenge or... Something. <laughs> yeah, Cesar's Revenge. I buy it. Yeah. Bring back Major Strasser from uh, Casablanca. He wasn't shot dead. And you can see him limping to the tarmac, trying to get there before Ilsa <laughs> and uh, Victor Laszlo take off in the plane. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And then, Paul, what about you? What do you have coming up? Okay, so a couple things. I've co-authored with uh, Logan's Run author, William F. Nolan, this novel, Logan's Journey is the fourth book in the Logan series, but the first one since the second sequel, Logan's Search, which was published way back in 1980. So this is kind of historic, especially for Logan fans, but really within science fiction. And uh, historic, too, is the fact that uh, we've managed to get, or or rather the English-based production company has managed to get Michael York, uh, who's become a a friend and collaborator of mine in the last uh, year or so, and Jenny Agater, with whom I fell in love six times for two hours each the <laughs> summer the movie came out, um, to reprise their roles from the 1976 film 40 years later. You know, they shot that film in 75. It came out in 76. They'll be recording in 2015 uh, with me narrating in 2016. So 40 years later, Bill Nolan himself is going to uh, not just read his author's note, but also play one of the parts I've got a part for Greg, and we'll we'll turn it, it, the, the company does not want to do this as just you know Michael and or Jenny reading the thing. Uh, they've done some I think Doctor Who and and uh, Battlestar Galactica related things, and they get the original cast together. So how great it'll be to to be in studio with two of my acting heroes. Um, working on a franchise that I've been crazy about since I first saw the movie at age 14 and doing it from something that I wrote with the original author. I mean, the only person more excited about this than me would be if you could go back to 1976 or 7 and tell that kid version of me that this was someday going to happen. really is a dream come true. I I was going to ask you about that because I know from watching uh, some of your movies with the introduction that you wrote a fan letter to Nolan. You were a huge Mm -hmm. fan of Logan's Run as a kid. You made a couple of movies featuring the Logan's Run characters. What would the young Paul say if you could go back and tell him, you know, I I will know Bill Nolan. I will work with these guys. I will become friends with them. What would they say? I think it would have been bred for the journey for a kid who was, you know, like many of us monster kids, kind of a misfit and not really understood by most of my peers and, you know, so we found each other, basically. My three best friends were all working with me on this stuff. John and Julia, who lived in Milwaukee and went to a different school than I did, where kids weren't as mean and judgmental. And uh, Greg, who lived, you know, quite a ways away. But when we got together, we would uh, work on movies together, or we'd even send a still photograph. I wanted him to be Satan in my movie, The Mummy's Fate, so he'd 
made himself up as Satan and took a photo and then I printed it out and put it in the middle of a like ring of fire or something. So uh, there's a way. We also acted together in prehistoric Planet of the Apes. So it would have been total bread for the journey because right. it would have said, this is, this is a tough time right now. You know, you've got loving parents. School's really hard because these kids are very judgmental and mean. And, and uh, you know what? They're not going to be working with Michael York, so screw them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the other book I'm working on right now is a nonfiction, my first nonfiction book. I mean, I write reviews, book and movie reviews for publications, but this is a book, a scholarly film book called Edgar G. Ulmer, A Life on Film. David Lurison is the arts and entertainment editor for the Milwaukee Shepherd Express, which is their big free um, weekly. And he's a film scholar, too, and uh, he approached me about co-authoring this with him. And uh, I said I'd love to. We uh, applied uh, to a, a university press, which accepted our application. And right now I'm writing a really long review, of a really analysis of Daughter of Dr. Jekyll. Ulmer is best known for The Black Cat. That was the closest thing to a big-budget movie he was allowed to make because, interesting story, Carl Lemley took him under his shoulder and said, here, do this. It's Karloff and Lugosi. It's the first time they'd ever worked together, and I think the best of their efforts together. Um, and, and so it, it had some, obviously, major studio backing and a decent budget, and it, it did pretty well commercially and very well critically, I think. And he should have had another, another crack or two. Unfortunately, on set, he fell, he, he was married and he fell, he had, he had 30, Omer, Edgar Omer, at 30, fell in love with the wife of Lemley's nephew, who was the script girl. And they ended up getting married. Omer, actually, I think they were both married, left their spouse or spouses, got married, and were together for the rest of their lives. So it was true love, apparently. But he was blackballed. Omer was not really. Uh, welcome to make movies for major studios, and he ended up working mostly for PRC, which was Producers Releasing Corp, also known as Pretty Rotten Crap. Um, but I related to him because, you know, the movies, the PC Productions, named after Paul Corwin, my first two names, they were made for, you know, half, half shoestring budgets. And you'd watch something like Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, Beyond the Time Barrier, Bluebeard, or um, uh, The Amazing Transparent Man, and you'd think, okay, so if he could do that in a week with $50,000, then I should be able to do something half decent with a couple of months and $40 in the backyard and in the basement. Maybe I'll make a field, a field trip over to the armory and shoot there until they kick me out. Um, you, you get very opportunistic. You know what I've noticed is that I still have somewhere in my mind the eyes of a 15-year-old boy filmmaker. And so I'll see something, and my first response will be, oh, you know, if you shot that from the right angle, that could actually pass for a mothership or whatever. Soldier Field, okay? There are parts <laughs> of Soldier Field that if I were a teen filmmaker today, I would totally go there and uh, and do some location footage. Um, I, w I would tilt the camera up or down on a section of the redone soldier field to make it look like a mothership was either uh, landing or taking off. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that I still see the world that way. I think my wife would have an opinion on that. Um, but I think that, that, that Derek and Greg might have a different opinion on that. And I, I think that it's neat that I'm still carrying <laughs> PC around inside me. There's nothing wrong with that at all, sir. Thank <laughs> I'm, you. I'm on, Thank I'm on board. you. Yes. <laughs> it, takes a, it may take the monster kid to no one. Um, trying to shop around the screenplay for my second book and first novel, Unplugged. We've got some people attached on both sides of the camera, some names that I won't name, but you would know some of these names. And uh, um, this is really my life's ambition, more so than any other project creative or other, otherwise is to have this film this um, this film happen to have this book which is the thing i'm proudest of of everything i've ever been involved with made into a, an indie feature film mm -hmm. and i'm also starting to adapt uh, my second novel planet of the dates 
which has a character named Craig Starling based on Greg Starrett uh, in it, because it's a comedic coming of age based on, in part, on my own life. Adapting that into uh, a screenplay, it was optioned at one point in Hollywood. And then here's a Hollywood horror story for you. The agent representing me in the property, he's not my agent, he represents the, the book publisher that published uh, this novel. He and the producer who optioned the property got into a petty fight. And here was the novelist trying to negotiate and make peace between an agent and a producer in Hollywood trying to do this from, from uh, Evanston, Illinois. And that's not going to work, and that's not my job, you know? <laughs> you wonder why things don't happen. Can't we all just get along? It's going to help everyone involved here if we can make this happen. So drop your Hollywood egos and just make it work. And it didn't. Well, I got some money for the four years that it was optioned, but not Hollywood money. The Hollywood money comes when it actually gets, you know, goes into pre-production. So um, they were working from a different script that they did without me. I'm going to adapt it. I have a film degree. I know how to write a freaking screenplay. The one for Unplugged won a prize, a national prize, and I'm going to make a better script, and we're going to make this movie happen. And Morris Day is going to be in it, for Christ's sake, you know? So... <laughs> It's time for a Morris Day revival. I'm convinced. And this is the way to make it so. <laughs> it's a awesome. shame you have to drag me out of my shell because I don't like to talk about my work. It's so hard yeah. interviewing you, Paul, because I always have to come up with these hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Draw me out. Just try. <laughs> like a splinter. Draw me out. <laughs> Greg, say something. We haven't heard from you in far too oh, long. I'm, I'm your pen and I'm teller, so. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, said. well said. Oh, man. All right. So, Paul, we know you've got a website, paulmacamas.com. Greg, do you have an online yeah. presence people can check out? I really don't. Uh, okay. You know, I'm just a boring guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, any of those, um, you can, it's a podcast, you can scroll back. Any of those publications I mentioned that gave us rave reviews, mm -hmm. um, you read about Greg and his work just by going to them and searching Starrett, S-T-A-R-R-E-T-T, -T -T, and there it'll be. We'll definitely make sure there's a link to Paul's website in the show notes, which, you know, with the new monster books eventually coming, I'm assuming... We've got a little bit of time on that still, right? The Mummy's oh, yeah. Cruise and all that. Oh, yeah. So when that happens, please let me know. We'll have you back on the show to talk about that. It might be tough with Paul because I know he doesn't like to talk, but we'll have you both on the show to talk about that. <laughs> I just want to stay home and watch movies. Now, listen, um, we do have an event. We do have an event to promote. Yeah? For any of your listeners and followers who live in or near Hanover, Illinois, Galena, Illinois, Iowa City, would that be, or Dubuque? Dubuque. Closer, Greg. Dubuque, Dubuque. Iowa, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, maybe getting out towards Chicago, Milwaukee. Tell, tell us about the event, Greg. And well, we're going to do a, a book signing and a read from our book uh, at uh, Sullivan's Antiques in Hanover, Illinois, uh, Saturday, October 24th. At Sullivan Antiques in beautiful Hanover, Illinois, Greg Starrett and Paul McComas will be uh, signing their book, Fit for a Frankenstein, and uh, performing some scenes from the book. And you can come out and check it out and see us and have a good time. We will also premiere, and saying this, we'll put the pressure on, that means we yeah. have to do it, right? We'll premiere a scene from The Mummy's Cruise. Oh, nice. Uh, so if you live anywhere reasonably close to Hanover, Illinois, and I listed some of those uh, municipalities and hamlets, uh, come on, it's free. The book is cheap. There are wineries and, and, and breweries in Hanover. It's one, one of the most beautiful places in the Midwest. And oh, my it's, God. It's going to be in probably the fall foliage will be in full color, so come on out and yeah. enjoy all right, so that's in October. 
we're not sure yet if it's afternoon or evening. Okay. I would like eat unless they think we'll get a much bigger turnout in the afternoon. I would say evening because it's before Halloween. It'll turn dark early. Mm-hmm. We'll be surrounded by antiques from the time period of the uh, of, of the story. So like early forties, give or take. When you perform the book, it's not just reading. You guys, I mean, I've seen right. a YouTube video where Greg's putting on a beard right. and and that sort of thing. How does something like this work? It's not just a straight up reading, is it? Call it a reading plus because we do have scripts in front of us, but they're really kind of for uh, reference. And we have it half memorized, and so we're able to look at each other when we're saying our lines. Because what you do is, uh, while Greg is saying a line, I'm glancing down at my script, and it's like, oh, yeah, that line. And then so I look back up at him, and I say my line, and vice versa. So it really does look more like performance, and it feels more like performance. We're in costumes. Uh, the scene you're talking about, and you should put this link up, Tarek, to uh, – uh, the uh, Tuesday Funk uh, performance we did of the, mm-hmm. the scene where uh, Igor and Klaus Hauptschmidt, the tailor, first meet. The, the audience was getting drunk, drunk so they, they were enjoying the scene quite a bit, and, and we have a ball doing it. We also did it at Houston Public Library, and uh, on a day, a night that uh, Greg couldn't do it, we, um, I did the scene with Steve Sullivan playing Igor um, at uh, Boswell Books in Milwaukee. So... We'll keep reviving this book, I expect, uh, at Halloween time for as long as we feel like it. It's it's timeless. It's not like, you know, well, now that it's 2017 or whatever it is, um, you can't do it. The movie's from 1942. I, I, I don't think there's a, an expiration date on Fit for a Frankenstein. I don't think so. I think it holds up just as well to uh, repeat viewings or readings as some of the movies, so... You know, yeah. in fact, I would prefer to read Fit for a Frankenstein than watch some of the later films. So, you know, <laughs> you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> well, now here's a pointer. Monster kids, fellow monster kids, if you own Ghost of Frankenstein, which you probably do, I certainly do, Greg does. Derek, do you own it? <laughs> a couple of different ways, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Start watching it. And when you get to that dissolve, hit stop. Pick up Fit for a Frankenstein. Read it. Take an hour, hour of ten, and then resume watching the film. That's the best way, don't you think, Greg? Oh, I agree. That'd be the way to do it. You'll never see the film the same way again. I mean, towards the end, there's a reference to Gretel's cousin, Ilka, uh, who tends a goose flock in Viseria. Well, guess what? You start watching after the dissolve, you'll see Ilka in about a minute. So there are these nice tie-ins with both the before and the after part of Ghost. It was written to do that. Well, it certainly still has the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. Listeners, check out Fit for a Frankenstein. Follow Paul at paulmccamas.com, and we'll definitely have you both back on to talk more about either the books or movies or more Lon Chaney or Conrad Veidt action. we got to have you back on. Right. Well, I'd love to do that. We'd love it. We'd love it. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make the event, but if you are in the area, go to the reading of Fit for a Frankenstein. I've seen the YouTube clips. I'm going to put a link to the YouTube clip in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. It looks like a lot of fun. Head over to paulmccamas.com or, again, follow the link in the show notes because I'm sure Paul will post all the news, including what time that reading takes place because the time has not been announced yet. Big thanks to Paul and Greg for appearing on Monster Kid Radio. Paul and I have some future plans to have him on the show to talk about one of my favorite monster movies and the remakes that followed. We're going to talk about the King Kong films in the near future. Yeah, when I say films, I mean the original as well as the two remakes. And we're going to look at some of the feminist themes and feminism in all three of these films. I'm excited just chatting with Paul by phone and by email about it. I know it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Greg and I have talked a little bit off mic as well. And yeah, if he does do anything podcast wise, like he said, when we were chatting earlier, you know, you're going to hear about it here on Monster Kid Radio. And because Fit for Frankenstein takes place during the course of events of Ghost of Frankenstein, why don't we play that trailer? There's a curse on our village. The curse of Frankenstein.
was Frankenstein, that your mother was the lightning, the most dreaded creation of man. The monster of Frankenstein stalks again. Here is drama completely strange, full of weird suspense. With this great cast, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Lionel Atwill, Ralph Bellamy, Bela Lugosi, Evelyn Ankers, Lon Chaney, in the gripping tale of a monster the tomb cannot engulf, chains cannot hold. You're going to give him life? Yes. Not for the purposes that you think, Igor. I'm giving him another brain. Is that your shower, husband? Yes, Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spending some time with me this Thursday, this week, with the show. Again, big thanks to Paul and Greg. If you are interested in anything that you heard about here on the podcast, head over to our website, monsterkidradio.net. There are links to everything that we've ever covered on every episode of Monster Kid Radio right over here, as well as some links to things like our Patreon store, where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show with a few bucks a month and score yourself some street rewards along the way. You also have links to every single song that's appeared here on the show, links to bands, websites, Amazon links, Facebook pages. So if you hear something that you like here on Monster Kid Radio, well, you know how to find it and buy it for yourself. You also have our contact information over here. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And we have a voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5M. K-R. If you want to talk about anything that you've heard on this episode of Monster Kid Radio or the previous 221, well, that's how you can do it. We also have a Facebook group where you can chat it up with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio on Facebook. And while there's not a link to it on our website, you can also go to Facebook.com slash Monster Kid Radio and like our page. Filmmaker Joe DeMiro challenged his Facebook friends to help push Monster Kid Radio over the 1,000 like mark by the end of August. Well, who's Joe DeMiro? He's the director of Tales of Dracula, and he's going to be on next week's episodes of Monster Kid Radio. He and the Tales of Dracula team premiered Tales of Dracula at Monster Bash, the most recent Monster Bash that happened earlier this summer. So we're going to talk to him about how that went down, what Monster Bash was like. And then, because Tales of Dracula is a monster movie mashup, he and I are going to break down our top three favorite monster mashup movies. I'm excited to get to that. I'm excited to talk about anything monster-related with monster kids around the world. So thank you for listening. Again, we appreciate all the likes, all the shares, all the retweets, all the reviews and iTunes. Just spreading the Monster Kid Radio word means a lot to me. Thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up so we can get this into the feed. Before we do that, I want to remind everybody that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Riding the Coffin. That belongs to the band Rondo Hatton. You can find them over at rondohattonband.com. The songs on the album Breaking the Sound Barrier... Talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.